0: People always ask how I balance my family life with 400 shows a year. I'm just doing what I love with the people I love. It's my magic life.
1: I like Wes Eisley. I like everything about
0: him. All right. Our guest today is uh, Ron Conley. If you've ever heard of Conley's House of Magic in Myrtle Beach, you know the man. I first met Ron in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, when I went to Myrtle Beach on vacation. I walked into his uh, shop called Conley's House of Magic. Every year on vacation, when I went to his shop, whoever I was with, my parents, uh, a girlfriend at the time, or more recently, Natalie, they knew that when I walked in that shop, I was going to be there for a while.
2: Yeah, I hung in for, you know, the first couple times we went, I stayed in the shop with him for like, I don't know how long, two hours, three hours. And then finally, like, I think on our like, third trip, the third year we went there, I, I went in. I probably stayed for a good half hour. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go around to the Christmas shop or the other shop. I'll come back and get you in a little while. <laughs>
0: I was in there for like six or eight hours on yeah. vacation. That was a day I planned for vacation. But whoever I was with, eventually, I mean, they would go out and go shopping on their own. Uh, kid in a candy store is an understatement. Um, I get nostalgic just thinking about the magic shop. He always had World's Greatest Magic playing on the TVs, his demo table, his performance table, um, and wall-to-wall real magic. Not just pitch magic that you'd expect in a tourist town. This was a magic shop. Um, Anyway, I can go on and on about the guy and about his magic shop, but uh, let's get to it. Everybody, it's Ron Conley. Woo! What's up, buddy? (laughs) I was just thinking while
1: you were talking, I probably should have had a little uh, counter there and served
2: uh, coffee and hot dogs or something like that. Everybody could have lunch there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Wes would have stayed there even longer. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. those were
0: the days. Man, I, I love that magic shop. And talking to you and hearing stories from the road, I mean, you know, I, I always made sure to buy something from you, Ron. I don't know if you realize that or not. but. Oh, I, I, I loved your magic stories. I loved hearing, you know, the Hell's Angels story. You, you told me that yesterday, but I remember you telling me that at this shop as well. And, man, I, I loved it. So, let's get let's get started with this thing. How did you get started in magic?
1: Oh, well, I did a magic show in the first grade. I didn't, uh, at the time, I, I don't think I had seen a magician. Uh, and I don't think I knew what magic was, but I did what amounted to a magic show. And then... You know, then it was like on and off. But uh, by um, pro- you know, probably the ninth grade, I had decided that that's what it was going to be. I had to be a magician. You know, um, but you know, I went through all the uh, magic set stage, and uh, and then uh, my dad actually. Uh, introduced me to a magician named Howard Hocus Hendrickson, and uh, he lived nearby, and he loaned me equipment and terrible books, and, uh, and uh, so I had a little act, you know, and he helped me a bit. And then uh, the clincher was when I saw Al Wheatley, uh, Chop Chop, perform, and uh, and that,
0: that sealed it right there. He produced eight doves from a change bag. Wow a chicken and he did card work and fire eating and
1: uh, me and uh, my friend were the only kids at the show, everybody else was just adults all dressed up and we were the only kids there and we, he, he, the magician was on in the first half and uh, and then at intermission we had this discussion about whether we should stay or not because it was all singing which we didn't come for <laughs> and. Uh, but then we finally decided that the magician was so good that surely he would have to be on in the second half again. And we stayed, and he wasn't on. But
2: uh, that
1: was quite an experience.
0: Yeah. Wow. So so right after high school, you joined the military?
1: Yeah, I went into the Air Force, and uh, I was uh, stationed after boot camp in... Tax school, I went to a missile site in uh, Niagara Falls, uh, New York, and uh, as soon as they people at the missile site found out I was a magician, they transferred me out of there. <laughs> you know, I, in other words, I couldn't be in the building where they had uh, the missiles at because I was a magician. I thought that was kind of interesting.
2: But, oh, that's uh, weird.
1: What <laughs> yeah, it kind of, you
0: know. what, what were they uh, going to think you were going to do? Distract people? I don't know. That's I funny. Know. That's I had funny.
1: no idea. I just, I said, okay, you know, what do I say?
2: Right.
0: So you where'd you grow up at? Uh,
1: well, I, I was b- uh, born in Reven, Oregon, raised in Pendleton, Oregon. Uh, and uh, I went to high school in Salem, Oregon, you know, so I'm from Oregon. I haven't been back there in a long time, but that's where I'm from.
0: So then you ended up in Niagara Falls. Now, where was the, the Ripley's Magic Shop? Was that Niagara Falls as well?
1: Well, they, they had, the Ripley's had a, a museum in Niagara Falls. And, uh, you know, I, when I was at the air base, I worked uh, for Gene Gordon um, at, uh, in Buffalo on weekends. And then uh, um, after I... Um, got out of the service, I tried to buy his shop, and my financing fell through, and then it just happened that Henry Mueller, who owned the Houdini Magical Hall of Fame, was looking for a magician, and uh, Gene recommended me, and uh, and me and Mary and Bart moved to to Canada, and we were actually landed immigrants, and I never knew that you know, I just filled out the papers and did whatever they told me to do. And, but that's, we were actually immigrants from the United States.
2: (laughs) Wow. uh, And so I had the magic shop there, but that, but then that was my first
1: connection with Ripley's, you know, and, uh, um, um, you know, later on, I ended up working for Ripley's and uh, we had, uh, uh, five magic shops with them. And, uh, but uh, I learned the magic shop business more or less from Gene Gordon, and then uh, Houdini shop was more tourist oriented, and I learned that part of the business. And then uh, and then they, uh, Ripley's was opening a museum of witchcraft and magic in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and that's where my first shop was. I was the end, end magic part of the thing, you know. They had a legitimate witchcraft museum, and I, uh, uh,
2: I was sort of a buffer because of, you know that was a questionable museum
1: right there in the Bible Belt. So,
0: oh yeah, yeah I get that. Yeah, yeah.
2: wow. And,
1: uh, but it was it was interesting. I uh, you know when I joined Ripley's, I thought it was more like Lowell Thomas, and uh, and I wanted to catch up, so uh, I went to New York and looked up witches, and uh, I had it was interesting. Uh, <laughs> Interesting experience, and uh, but th- while I was with the Ripleys, we did meet a lot of the uh, a lot of witches and stuff, and uh, I mean legitimate witches, and it was quite a n- different experience.
0: So. Well, when uh, we when Natalie was pregnant with our first kid nine years ago, we went on vacation instead of going to Myrtle Beach or another beach. We ended up because uh, she was so late in her pregnancy. We went to Salem um just to do research and just to see everything and and you know look around cuz how can you you know can you believe all these people burned witches and all this stuff and you know as magicians we know the tricks of the trade and we know you know what's real what isn't and what's what's capable of taking place and i don't know i've been i've been yelled at and accused of being a witch i'm i'm sure people have yelled at you as well being at the end of the museum no matter what you do you could do you know, the simplest pitch magic trick, a magic coloring book or nickels the dimes and they'd yell at you for being a witch just because you're associated with the museum.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, it, uh, we didn't really have any problems there but we did sell, uh, you know, we sold crystal balls and tarot cards and uh, we had uh, little uh, kits for spells and stuff like that. We we had a line of merchandise that was bent in that direction, you know, but, uh, oh.
2: uh, and
1: then when we're San Francisco, there was the hardcore witches were there, and
0: uh, <clears throat> there to be avoided, I would think. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's that's uh, a whole other world. That's a whole other world. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it is. But anyway, Ripley's was a great experience for me, and uh, so was Houdini's. You know, when I went to Houdini's, I wasn't really uh, quite ready for that, but uh, it was a great experience for me, you know, running the magic shop and... Uh, we had uh, guided tours there at the museum, and uh, um, it was a uh, kind of ahead of its time and just out of the traffic flow, and uh, and so business was a, was a little bit slow there. You know, eventually they moved to a better location, but then they didn't have a better museum. The first museum was really great. You know, it was really great, and I got to meet a lot of great people. Uh, you know, Mel and Christopher and Walter Gibson walked in the door one day and wow. I was not sitting down with them and having a conversation you know, and, uh, and we had uh, and there probably a lot of great magicians that I didn't even recognize that came through there or a lot of potential great magicians that came through there uh, uh, Susie Wan just came through there and they just published a book on her career but she was one of the hottest acts in Europe and and uh, I don't know how old she was at that time, but my wife and I thought we were old, and or she was old. So uh, we were. Henry Mueller had a little hotel next to or near the museum, and she was staying there. And she came, I think, to um, try to get some of her husband's things in the museum. Uh, Zina Bennett, he did manipulation with jumbo cards, and and uh, so when we were asked to uh, escort her around town and take her to dinner and show her the sights and stuff and when we went to her
2: hotel room the strangest thing happened she made us come in the room and and we
1: had to sit on the edge of the bed and she got out her cards and her coins and she did uh, um, front and back palming and split fans and moves that i've never seen and she did coin work all real sophisticated magic You know, with one hand she vanished seven coins one at a time and then produced them again all one at a time and it was just absolutely perfect, you know, so...
0: And this was early 80s? Uh, Yeah, she
1: knew knew that uh, we were looking at her like she was an old lady and she did. She wasn't. She was a slight-hand artist and she she showed us and that, of course, changed our whole attitude, you know, but... uh, uh, um, but that was one of the, you know, and there are a lot of other guys, Francis Martin, was there, and Duke Stern. and I can still see Duke Stern standing in front of the museum and looking at the outside, saying, "The board, magic needs more people like this," you know.
0: So. Well, and and it needs it needs brick and mortars nowadays. I mean, if we're going to keep this art alive, it's got to be. We need something. It's it's really yeah. hard online because it's 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 like the wild west and. You know, a, a kid goes online and they learn really advanced stuff and but they have no idea in the basics and there's nowhere really for them to go to learn. And yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm glad I came up when I did because, you know, I felt like I learned in a traditional way and I had to, you know, learn to crawl before I walked.
1: Yeah, well, that was a difference in my shop. My shop contained uh, uh, not only basic magic but utility items and nothing... Uh, nowadays seems to be basic or utility, you know, so uh, I, you know, I, I could tell that change right away, you
0: know. Wow. Yeah. So when you were with Ripley's and Houdini's Museum, were you like the the manager over the different locations, or were you the dealer there? Did you order for everybody? How did that work?
1: Yeah, well, we, we had a shop, the first shop was in Gatlinburg, and then we had one in and, of course, Myrtle Beach here, in one in Estes Park, Colorado, and one in St. Augustine, and we had one on the uh, Wharf in San Francisco, and uh, um, I designed all the shops and bought the merchandise and set them up, and then at the beginning of every year, we I didn't make a, a large buy, you know, for all the shops, you know, cards, cups, and coins, and f- in fact, Paul said i placed the largest order in the history of Robbins company so uh, you know a merchant up and uh, i'd go to every shop you know a couple times a year and uh and work with them and uh you know redo displays and you know train people and uh we had some really great crews and uh in fact at one time nearly all the uh Demonstrators for Magic Masters were came from out of our shops, you know.
0: So. Oh, wow. Well, that's what I was going to yeah. ask. Any magicians come out of that Were you trained them in the basics to do pitch magic and they became, you know, magician magicians? Uh, Any names come top off your head?
1: Yeah, nothing pops up
2: right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, Mike Absinthe was my first demonstrator I ever hired. you know. He
1: was, uh, uh, you know, the main man for Magic Masters and, uh, uh, we had a fellow named Bruce Pancake who was uh, is now a brain surgeon. Oh and, wow! Um,
2: I should probably look him up. <laughs> uh, speaking speaking of the demonstrators,
1: you know we had uh, um, if a in a tourist shop if a, if a demonstrator can can do uh, string galley deck and the cups and balls and nickels the dimes. He wouldn't really necessarily have to know anything else. I mean, there's other things to sell, but if he can sell those, he's, he's paying his way. And so we're stretched. We uh, uh, were very adamant about everybody being able to be good at those. And I had a demonstrator one time, uh, uh, his name escapes me right now, Mike. I, I can't think of his last name. But uh, he, uh, he believed me and one time we were in a conversation with me and his girlfriend and, and some other people and, and thought we were talking about death and and and, and he told me said, michael hutchinson i think what's his name and, um he said to me that he already knew how he was going to die he was going to die in an automobile accident and uh, of course i said well how would you know that but uh, he didn't have an answer but later on he actually did die in the uh, an automobile accident and and then and the kicker is that when they had his funeral he according to his request was buried with uh his uh, string jelly deck and cups and balls and nickels to dimes wow so, wow you know, how's that for a devotion anyway yeah wow you mentioned before about the uh um, uh, um
2: Hell's angels uh, yeah uh, the, there was a cl- there was a club in uh, there was a club in Buffalo
1: called uh, Frank's Casanova, and I worked there a lot. And uh, uh, we, we had uh, uh, like a variety show, but we also had generally a couple of strippers there. So um, I worked there one time for two weeks, and, my, and the only audience at that time was Hell's Angels. Nobody else would come in, and they so they kind of like took over the whole club. And uh, I can remember standing back to the the first night and I've got tails and patent leather suits on, suit uh, shoes on, and I'm going to produce soap bubbles,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my audience sorry, is those I'm angels. angels. <laughs> and the ventriloquist, a fellow named Johnny Main, he, he says, no,
1: don't worry about it. You know, and he encouraged me and I went out and as heck, they liked it. And the whole week was really easy. and. Uh, I remember one time I, I, I'm i doing the soap bubbles and one guy and we had a stage that came out into the audience and one guy at the end of the stage stood up and hit this other guy and knocked him on the floor and he said, and then he stood over me he said, see I told you, soap bubbles. So the guy on the floor kind of gets up on his knees and looks at me and he says, yeah, soap bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> so, what the heck? that was, uh, You know, but I had no problems, Uh, you know, I I had no problems with them, and and they liked the magic and stuff, and magic goes good in that type of environment, you know, and we had a lot of places we had in Buffalo at that time, there was a stage door, and there was a stage L, and there was a town casino, and and there was uh, five or six clubs, Club Sheridan, and, and um redwood lounge these all they all had like stages and they'd have like variety shows and they weren't they were in neighborhoods a lot of them you know he it was uh, so it was a good start and all the magicians uh, you know like robbie Allen, they all worked there too and uh, so it was about three or four of us working those places and we just sort of traded off one time i came out france casanova and doug henning and or Thomas and Robbie Allen were sitting in the audience. That was a, kind of a surprise, you know, especially when I dropped
2: dropped
0: the coin. So, oh no! <laughs> wow, but you got to know you got to know. I know you and Rob Allen are friends, but as far as uh, Doug Henning, were you guys friends, friendly? You you knew each other pretty well.
1: Yeah, when we uh, uh, he would do shows occasionally in Niagara Falls, and every time he did, he'd come by the museum and. And see me, and he'd he'd beep on a few things, and he but he'd always invite me to the show, and he'd give me literally give me a notebook and a pencil and tell me to come to the show and write constructive criticism and I would, and uh, as usually happens when you got a magician in the audience, especially if you know it you know, you you know he made a lot of mistakes that I wrote down, but uh, that's just part of the business, you know it just happens that way. And when he um, um, uh, was, you know, he had a Christmas show at the Royal Alexander in Toronto, and that's where he was picked up by the people from Broadway, the people who did Godspell and Pippin Sawyer's show. He was in that theater for a couple of weeks, and it was a show that, that Doug Henning had written himself. And after they'd made arrangements for him to come to New York, they... Had like an off Broadway theater in in Toronto where where Doug was performing, and uh, so I went out there one night to see the show. And after the show, Doug Henning and uh, uh, his girlfriend—I think—I I think her name was Moon—they went. To, we all went to her parents' house, and uh, the strangest thing was that the, the people, that her parents and everybody, were just so enamored with him they just uh, you know they were standing close to him and they would touch him and and, and, you know they were just uh, just unreal how they they just adored him you know and and he would they'd he'd do little tricks you know not not nothing serious just little standard tricks and and, uh, then when they found out i was a magician they wanted me to do something and uh and uh And I I tried real hard not to do anything. I kept turning them down, you know, because I I think when you're in somebody else's place, you don't work. You you help them look good, but you don't. You never work in somebody else's place. And he hadn't done anything that was, you know, real sophisticated, so to speak. But finally, he made me do something. So I did a haunted deck, and it just blew those people away, but it also killed the night. It just spoiled everything. I felt like a jerk, you know, because uh, it just was so much better than everything that he was doing. But uh, um, you always remembered that, and, and so uh, nowadays, when I, if I'm faced with that same situation, I make sure I don't do anything. You know, you shouldn't do that. You should just, you know let everybody do their own show and, you
0: know yeah that's that's hard that's that's a real yeah. hard thing but yeah
1: I, I really felt bad about that you know because he was doug Hange was really a nice kid there's no way you could be mean to him he was uh, uh just uh everything you know it, when he got that broadway show you know he got a lot of criticism from local magicians and he just Sucked it up and went and did his thing. And later on, I went to New York and saw the show. And he took me to dinner with the with the, the cast. And he was just a really a nice kid. and I always thought that his secret to success was he was the first hippie magician uh, right there on Broadway. And and I thought that well eventually he as he gets old. He'll be like the grandpa magician, and all the kids that seen him when they were kids would bring their kids to see him, and, and, and he would roll along. But um, when he was trying to get back into that, he, he uh, got, got cancer and went quickly.
0: So, But
1: um uh, real nice fellow.
0: Nice I've, I've never heard a bad thing about him from anyone. Everybody loved him. Everybody loved him. Um, when we went to the Magic Castle, people were talking about how great he was and that, you know, he used to come there and everybody has a story with, with Doug. Um, yeah. but your trick that you did, the haunted deck, I mean, that, that's a powerful trick. If, if someone's never seen that trick and was staging staging it in patter and everything, you, you can blow people away. So I can see how that could have, he did fickle nickel and you do haunted deck. I mean, that's, it's day and night different. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I uh, it's, it's a strong trick I don't too many not a lot of people do it nowadays but I, I we did it in the magic shop and we figured a way of uh, of uh, um, taking it off, off and uh, we added some uh, you know we changed the mechanics of the trick a little bit and uh, um, and so we made it better. We could uh, do it on the spot and we could do it no matter how we were dressed
0: and stuff, you know, so... That's awesome. Well, I, you were I'm talking sure. about, you were talking about the Hell's Angels and then you talked about the stage door and some of those other places. But you said the stage door was a really rough place too. I mean...
1: Yeah, you... there were, uh, uh, You know, I know I know people had been killed in their parking lot.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> I
1: had a, that was, uh, I guess my yeah my first agent was had an office above the the stage door. His name was Norm Malone, and and uh, he not only was a booking agent but he was a private investigator. So when I'd come,
2: that's a mix. Him,
1: he'd be sitting behind the deck with uh, a a shoulder pistol, you know, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just always got got a kick out of that, you know, but. Uh, uh, but he was a real nice fella, and uh, no, he booked me in there. Uh, uh, my first booking in that place, you
0: know, Norm Malone. Well, and you were talking about you were talking about the other places that you worked, and was that a place that Rob worked with you, Rob Allen? Did he work oh, at yeah. Stage Door? And you said Eddie's Fector's Bar. Were you you and and Rob both part of the original of that?
1: Yeah, we, uh, every Friday night, you know, the Magic Club would meet out there, and he had a room upstairs uh, um, above the bar that had a stage, so uh, when we had lectures, they would do it up there, and, uh, but every Friday night,
2: uh, uh, a, a regular group of magicians would meet out
1: there, you know, and, uh, there was Mike Skinner and, uh, Lou Gallo and, uh, you know, Matt Gallo's dad, and, um... Eddie Dunn and uh, Bill Oakle, they were were all uh, heavy into card stuff and uh, cards and coins And, uh, um, you know, anybody that wanted to perform could perform, you know. There was no rules. There wasn't any house magician except for Eddie Factory, you know, which was the greatest. And uh, uh, so, but the, the fun part, the best part of... The whole thing is going out to breakfast afterwards. So at, well, after the bar closed, Eddie would take usually eight or ten people would come with him. We'd, we'd all go to this restaurant and uh, and Eddie would uh, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, you would laugh till you cried. <laughs> you know, uh, of all the, the things that he would say and do with the waiters, waitresses, and stuff. You know, it just uh,
0: it's like a magic convention. When the guys get together, it's just a, a good time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. I, uh, um, um, Mike Skinner was one of uh, Eddie's um, main uh, 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 friends, and uh, in fact, I think Mike Skinner even used to sleep over there. You know, because that had originally been a motel too, I guess, and. Uh, Eddie did a lot of peaks, and and, uh, often that he would do a side steal, which uh, I always thought was neat. And I learned to do it, and uh, and Michael Skinner, you know, could do it. And one only thing is, when he did it, the duck would not move; there would be no motion. And uh, I uh, I asked him one time if I could sit at an exposed angle and watch the move. And I did, and that card came out of there just like floating in the air and floated out of the deck and onto the top and, and no, mo- no no motion at all. And 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 that was a lesson for me because I learned at that time that the reason he could do that, not to, just because he was practicing a lot, but he was like the guy that could run the 100 under Tim. And I could practice the rest of my life and I was never going to be able to do it like he did it I mean, I could do it but I'm gonna have to use misdirection and uh, and and timing and you know I'm going to to get around you know he has him you could just look at what he was doing and never and still not see it you know but because uh, a lot of guys beat their head against the wall trying to do stuff that they really can't do and and uh, but uh, uh simplicity is genius so you know uh, on the other side of the coin is if you can make it simple you you've really done something as simple as is always the best way to go you know but uh, yeah and, and they were all be learning a certain move every time i came out so whatever they uh, whatever they did that's what i learned you know so i ended up learning a lot of moves but i didn't have any tricks
2: with them. <laughs> wow well, until
1: later on in life, you know, I, I I picked out the ones that I could use, you know, and uh, you know, and you can, you can, you could know three tricks and still be a successful magician if you really wanted to, you
0: know. Well, so I always not, bring up, I always bring up Don Allen when it comes to that. I mean, that guy only did 10 tricks his entire career, but I mean, he, he worked trade shows. He was on, you know, the equivalent of The Tonight Show, whoever that was at the time, and I mean, he was, yeah. he was everywhere, and I think he only knew 10 tricks, but he did them extremely well.
2: Yeah,
1: that, uh, that's the real answer to it. It's not the uh, quantity, it's the quality, you know, not what you do how you do it, and, you know, so... Uh, um, so that was a great learning experience out there, and also when I after I got out of the service, I before I went to Houdini's, I worked for George and Company in Buffalo, and they
2: were at the time one of the largest manufacturers of gas gambling equipment in the country. And oh wow, uh, the, never heard in the of that room. I made dice. You know, I uh, I um, milled the dice and. And drilled the spots and painted uh, the dice, and uh, um, but we had everything. And uh, I met
1: every crook from Toronto to Miami, Miami, and I never met a crook I didn't
0: like. Well, wow, they're always very likable. I mean, they have to be.
1: That, that's it, you know. And he would, uh, uh, George would let me hang around when he was talking to the real gamblers, and you know, there's a special lingual you know, that they have, and you have to learn all that. But uh, um, the dice that we made were, uh, sometimes it would take 12, 14
0: different machines that, to make those dice, you know. Wow. And uh, they were perfectly square to, I think,
1: one, I don't know, ten thousandths of an inch or something. But they um, they had a lot of unusual machinery that you can't go just out and buy uh, so that was an interesting job but uh, you know we had all kinds of gas equipment you know we had magnetic loads and we loaded dice with uh with gold and with and and with platinum and we had uh, george did all all the uh, magnetic loads and things and and a lot of times people would bring in parts of uh, uh, um, gambling tables that he worked on with electronics and, it uh, was just, uh, you know, kind of like related to magic, but,
0: uh, um, Kind of, I, I mean, uh, it, yeah, it's kind of related. I mean, there's people that making their living today doing stuff with that and calling it a magic trick, but really it's just a gambling cheat. Yeah. Um, do right. you have any of that stuff in your collection?
1: Uh, probably, but very few. The, the, um, uh, uh, you know, even at the time, I couldn't afford to buy the loaded dice. I don't know what they cost now, but they were expensive then, and we would, uh, uh, you know, he had a couple of books, little black books there, and it had all these names and addresses in them. And, uh, I remember one time I came in, and I took an order on the phone from some guy in Florida for some special dice, and and then I gave it to George and he says, well, we can't, you know, we can't send this stuff through the mail. And then later on that day, we were making all these things. And then late on in the afternoon, they, they sent me to the post office. <laughs> I was the one that went to the post office. And the reason I went is because there was a Your Host uh, coffee shop or, or, right next to the post office, and I'd stop and have coffee, you know. In fact, I even told them that's what I did, but I don't think they believed me. But uh, um, there was, uh, you know, every, I don't know, maybe every month or so, a couple of guys would come in and they would have, uh, they would have uh, big trays of dice, you know, velvet line boxes. And inside was every, the dice...
2: Uncanceled dice from every casino in Vegas. They had there wow. and every couple of weeks, another two guys would come in, and they would have marked
1: cards. We had every marked card that existed, and uh, um, we had luminous marked cards too. George would would
0: mark them himself, you know. But um, so that was an interesting business. I enjoyed that. Wow, you could you could write a book just on that. That's, <laughs> it's it's so much fun. So awesome. You can go down a whole rabbit hole doing... A, you could probably do a whole podcast alone just on gambling techniques and stories about gamblers and cheats and Luminous cards and everything. You know, Luminous Mark cards. It'd be amazing. Oh,
2: wait, no, that would be very interesting. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: There's a fella in Las Vegas whose name is Ron Conley, just like mine. And he runs a casino. And he is an expert at, uh, gambling, uh, you know, um, he does all the moves and stuff and, uh, he's on the web. You can find him on the web. But what happens is, uh, people go on the web, they look up Ron Conley and they get his thing and they read about him. And then they come to the magic shop and I hear things like, boy, I'd like to know what you have already forgotten. Wow. <laughs> <You> know, that, <laughs> it, I never
0: did tell anybody that that wasn't me because that because was so great when they talked about me. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah,
2: it is.
0: Yeah. But, uh, next, go ahead. Next time I go to Vegas, I'm going
1: to look him up and tell him that. I wonder what he'll think.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, um, after knowing you a few years, I bought a collection of magic at a, at a magic convention or somewhere. And I'm going through it and I'm looking at all these books and I saw a Just Say No book and I put it on my bookshelf, and it sat there for a while. Then I pulled it out right before vacation one year. And I was like, holy crap, this is written by that guy that owns that magic shop. And uh, devoured the whole thing. So you literally wrote the book on Just Say No shows. Uh, tell me tell me about those. And you did every school show in every school in South Carolina doing Just Say No shows?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Every elementary and primary school I did. Wow. I, did I was doing like about 300 assemblies a year and. Uh, um, I had it just right, you know, and I had the, the right program and had everything reduced to the lowest common denominator. And uh, I went all over the state. And I had uh, two or three years that were really great with, right within the state of South Carolina. Eventually, I, I ended up working in about five different states. And then towards the end, uh, the Department of the Navy uh, booked me for I did then three years in a row, and I did all the military installations on the the East Coast and some on the golf course. I mean, that it's all you know. I did uh, Coast Guard, the Marines, Army, the Navy, everything. And uh, the interesting part about that is, is um, uh, when I was trying to book this, I had sent a video to. I, and I can't remember how I got onto it, but I, I had sent a video to uh, uh, Pensacola, and uh, the gal that does the booking looked at the video and she liked the show and she and she uh, took, uh, gave me a, a tentative schedule and, and and asked me to send invoices for that which I did, and then in a while, in a short period of time I got a call from her. And uh, she got the invoices,
2: and she, and, and get this, she told me she says you didn't charge enough. Oh wow. And I,
1: she says, so why don't you send me some new invoices? Oh so I wow. I doubled everything and sent them back to her, and I, and that was the first of three years of bookings. But, uh, I think they had other people who were doing these types of shows for them, and they were charging them a lot of money and they were and apparently they were flying and back and forth to all the shows and everything i didn't know about this i eventually i found out about that you know because uh, when i did the shows like when i went to fort bragg they were shocked that i showed up at the schools did the show and went back to the hotel they were expecting to drive me around and and chauffeur me and you know they were really surprised, you know, that I just, you know, I just did what I normally do, you know. Wow. And, uh, but that was a uh, that was good, you know. You don't normally uh, something like that you wouldn't normally get three
2: years in a row. But uh, I am. I, uh, and then once she was transferred out, I lost it. But you know, that's the way it goes.
0: Yeah. Oh, we've had that with school shows and oh, resorts everything. and yeah. everything. You, once your once your contact person goes, the new person. Knows a better way to run the company or a better way to run the company picnic.
2: Want to do something different that wasn't the same thing as the person before them, so yeah. Yeah, it's, uh,
1: but I like the school shows. I think that's the greatest audience in the world. I don't think it gets any better than than the kids, and the the experiences I've had with them are just terrific. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I told you during the pre-interview that, you know, we I've had shows where the kids were yelling so loud. It felt like the Beatles before the curtain opened. They're cheering. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah. screaming, screaming. And then you get the other schools where the principal's so demanding of them. Sit down. Don't you say a word. You only clap when he asks you to clap and do that. And then they don't act like a normal audience. So I've had that, too. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I did one show where i was the first assembly they've ever had at the school and the principal had been there 20 years and i'm have the curtains drawn i'm setting up my act and, and it's getting kind of warm so i figure i'd go to open the curtains but as i started to open the curtains i noticed that the the whole cafeteria was filled with kids and they weren't making a
2: sound I oh my goodness wow so
1: I closed the curtains and and went on setting up, and and then when I got ready to open the curtains again, they were gone, and I hadn't heard uh, anything. So he really had them (laughs) under control, you know. And I worked another show. This is a good one. I had worked another show where the principal told me that they had just had a magician there recently, and then apparently he had problems with the audience. And so he literally packed up his whole act right in front of him, picked it up and walked out the door. And
0: uh what the heck? he said and he he said, You won't do that, will you? <laughs> of course I
1: just laughed and uh, we had a great show but uh um, <laughs>
0: They must have really got to that you know, it, it, That's one of my pet peeves, though. I mean, you got to start somewhere, Ron. I mean, we all were awful at the beginning. We all, you know, picked up a Svengali deck and had no idea what we were doing when we started out. But yeah. anybody can get a business card, say they're a magician, call a school, give them a price, and get booked. Anybody. Yeah. Very rarely do these schools vet people. So this guy obviously didn't know what the heck he was doing and had to pack up his show. I'm done. He, he might have quit show business that day. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I felt kind of sorry for him,
1: you know. But I run into a lot of things. I, I remember one show, I, I, it was a repeat show. I, I don't think they knew it was a repeat. I had been there to their school before, but they, they insisted on having this show in this auditorium. And, and the auditorium had a... Had a um, an orchestra pit, and and that whole orchestra pit was filled with desks and chairs and computers and all kinds of junk, and then behind that was the stage, and and I'm thinking to myself, well, it's going to be harder to get a a rapport with the audience, because I got all this garbage in front of me, and it it just isn't right, and uh, so, but I did the show, and it was okay, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like uh, what what it should have been, and uh, after the show, the the teacher came up to me and she says you know you should have been here last year that guy really knew how to handle kids (laughs)
0: wow I didn't
1: didn't tell her it was me so so you can you know you can uh, you know one week you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and the next week you're just uh, a magician you know but you have to expect that that's what happens you can't uh, ride high all the time so
0: and I knew that but I got a kick out of her saying that (laughs) we had a show we had a show it was either Richmond or Virginia Beach and they got grant money to to hire a a big show they wanted our biggest show no don't worry about price because we got grant money it's free money we're going to blow it whatever you charge us is going to be great So we charged them our going rate for our biggest show that we had, which was a full evening magic and illusion show. It takes us four hours to set this thing up. It's a big show, Ron. So during intermission, Natalie's selling magic and I'm resetting illusions and resetting animals, getting ready for the second half. Come out, do the second half. The lights are in our eyes. We can't see beyond the first three rows anyway. At the end of the show, they turn the house lights on and there is a quarter of the audience that was originally there. Less than that? I don't know, Ron. It was, a, it was very thin. Yeah. And we asked the principal, said, what happened? Did they not like our show? I mean, the people that stayed loved it. What happened? He said, that's why we have the grant money. Yeah. They've never had live entertainment here, and they didn't know what a, uh, an intermission was. You, you didn't explain intermission well enough to them. They thought that an intermission meant that you reset to do the same thing again. I mean, wow, you never, that never crossed our mind that, you know, you tell people, hey, we're going to do a 15-minute intermission, we'll be right back. You usually don't have to say more than that, you know? Yeah. Crazy, crazy. I work some schools, older schools that were
1: uh, um, built when Houdini was still alive. And uh, the old schools, they all are like vaudeville houses they've got this uh, dressing rooms under the stage and i could see where trap doors had been cut out and and then the thing that i really like about the old schools is you walk
0: to the back of the stage and there's a door and you open it up and you're outside yeah and the new schools you know every time i
1: pack stuff into a school i think to myself of a guy who designed this this uh, auditorium had never packed anything into a building or he would have put a door in the back of the stage there,
0: you know. <laughs> so. uh, some of these load entrances don't even make sense. Not, not at, and, and parking to get near the back door, yeah, yeah. it's you have to go f- four different hallways to exit the building. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So um, getting back to you and getting back to your crazy everything that you've done, it's so much, we could do five podcasts about it, um, in my collection I have a lot of old magazines and everything and you're on the cover of a Topps magazine uh, Topps was the Abbott's magic magazine Abbott's in Colon, Michigan had their own magic magazine um, yeah. how'd you get on the cover of that? Just being well, a demonstrator?
1: I, no, Gene Gordon you know was uh, worked for Blackstone before and uh, um, and he knew Nick uh, 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 Oh, I'm I'm searching for his name now. I started to say Nick Cross, but that's not it. Well, geez, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Well, he knew people at the the thing there, and and Gene did all he could to promote me. You know, like when we go to a convention, he would tell the people that I had to be on the show. I mean, Gene was... uh, you know, of course, he started DIBM. He and if he said something, everybody listened, and and so he put me on all the shows, and uh, uh, that was a great experience for me. You know, in fact, I I did so many conventions that that even to this day I, I I I can't I have trouble going to a convention if I'm not performing because I don't know what to do when I get there, and it just. So used to being on the show, but uh, that's how that happened. And uh, I, um, you know, I was just um, making my move, and he knew I was, uh, uh, you know, that that would help me. You know, in fact, you know, the book, the the say no to drug show book. That's uh, I, I, I wasn't really exactly in my mind. I wasn't writing a book. I was preparing a a, a big brochure for later on you know I, I had hoped to go other places with this drug show and, and you know make it really big time and i and i figured the book would be uh like my best brochure you know so i mean i never did do that but that was my thought in mind you know, i more, wanted the book for promotion more than anything you know
0: well i mean that's that's a big thing in marketing i mean, this guy literally wrote the book on just say no shows. You might as well hire him. I mean, you're done. That that is that is a brochure. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but you know they did. They didn't. The school, even the schools, that eventually did. They considered it a motivational show. But that's how they termed it. They didn't say say no to drugs. So they, it was motivational. But I worked for the Dare program and. Uh, and, uh, I worked for Just Say No, and I worked for Alcohol and Drug Abuse Commission, and, and I had, you know, towards the, the end, uh, I, I even would get sponsors for the shows, you know. I didn't have, uh, um, you know, as the, as the drug shows tapered off, that's what I did is I got sponsors for all the shows, and
0: uh, that worked out pretty good too. me. Well, and you also, um, we got like 10 more minutes left, so I'm skipping ahead here. You also worked at the Magic Castle with Kuda Bucks. That's pretty awesome.
1: Kuda yeah. Bucks, yeah, that was quite an experience. He uh, uh, was in the, I guess you'd call it the cellar, and, then, uh, and he was unbelievable. He, uh, you know, uh, if he really did what he said he did, it wouldn't look any different than what it did. You know, I I don't know how he could do everything and do it so fast and so positively. It was just, uh, it looked really real to me.
0: (laughs) Natalie's looking at me as, who's Cuda Bucks? Cuda Bucks would do a blindfold act where he'd put dough in his eyes, half dollars, then dough. Uh He'd smush the dough, duct tape, turbans, everything around his eyes, and you'd write something on a chalkboard, and he'd look at you, and he'd copy it Exactly. Oh, wow. With chalk, on a chalkboard.
2: Very cool. With
0: all this stuff. Yeah, it's it's amazing. um
1: well, I don't... I, I can't... I still work to this day, can't believe it. But I worked with... And then Je- I think the, I'm trying to think who the other performer
2: was. I, I want to say uh, Johnny Plant. I'm not sure.
1: But he had this big rope that was about six foot long and maybe three inches around and he, he would talk about the Hindu rope trick and the little Hindu boy this and the little Hindu boy. And then when he got to the part where it was time to do the rope trick, he'd look out into the audience and he'd say, well, is there, is there a small Hindu boy in the audience? And, and of
2: course there wasn't, so he'd throw the rope over his shoulder and he'd say, no Hindu
1: boy, no Hindu rope trick.
0: <laughs> Can't do that one. <laughs> and one
1: one night... Some people brought a small Hindu boy.
0: In. <laughs> oh no! And I, I can't remember what she did, but we—it was, it was
1: quite a laugh. And I'll tell you what else happened. I had, I had, uh, I had in my table I, at that time. I always did this. I had, I would have a Sringali deck, an invisible deck, and a mental photography deck, which is for all practical intents and purposes especially from a layman's view, is a card magic act if anything went wrong during my show that i couldn't handle i i have another little act right there that i could i could do and one night when i came out i was doing a cigarette production i did john booth's act from Marvel's of mystery or something. I forget
2: what it was, the one with the stack of glasses. Anyway, I, I, um, all
1: the cigarette loads on one side dropped on the floor. I don't know. I guess I didn't pin them good, but they dropped on the floor. So now you can work around that. But at the time, I just didn't feel going through all the motions to get around that. So I grabbed those three decks, and I just did those. And the show went as well as as it did if I didn't do the cards. Wow. And and right away I was thinking, well, gee, you know, if all I had to do was these three decks, I could be upstairs having fun like the rest of the guys, you know. (laughs) But uh, that was, again, a lesson, you know, it's... Those three decks we pitched at, at Houdini's. You know, you could buy any one deck for a certain price. You could buy any two decks for another price, and you could buy all three decks for an, another price. And uh, um, so we got real good at those decks, and uh, um, I eventually reinvented the Svengali deck, and I call it the Con deck, and it, and it becomes uh, um, a story trick
0: in which the cards change colors and stuff. And uh, um, that, uh, that's something I think is like. I say, I'll send you one. I, I love it. I would love it. Well, I we're running out of time here, Ron. I, I wanted you to tell my wife about your daily routine. Now that you're semi-retired, the magic shop's now closed. You're still doing 100 shows a year. So if you're listening to this and you want an awesome magician for your family show or kid's birthday party... Give Ron a call. He's seen it all, done it all. He is the man. But uh, tell Natalie um, about your daily routine. I love it.
1: Okay, well, when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I sit on the bed as I grab these uh, 12 palming coins, or Nielsen palming coins, and I put them into a classic palm position in my right hand, and I produce them one at a time, and then I do a whole coin routine with those. And then I put those down and I grab a stack of quarters and I do the same thing with a stack of quarters. And uh, when I'm in in the bathroom brushing my teeth, I do a a thimble routine, which is based on using the lids from toothpaste and stuff. I got a whole little thimble
2: act that, that I do there.
0: I love it. I love it. I want thimbles in my bathroom now. That's awesome.
2: That's what, yeah, I think Wes is going to take over your routine. I just see yeah, it coming.
0: I just know it. <laughs> hey, Ron, thank you for being on here today, man. I've had a blast. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Before you retired, we knew the magic shop was going to go. When did you close it? On what birthday? That was the big deal. You closed it on a certain birthday.
1: are. I don't know. Do I close
0: it on my birthday? Yeah, it was your your birthday. (laughs) It was like when you turned turned 70 or there was a certain... You closed it when you turned 70. Maybe. I guess so. Oh,
1: I'll be 77
0: in January. Has it been closed seven years already?
2: Ah, geez. Time
0: flies. Wow. (laughs) Well, I remember talking to you that last year and when that shop was closing. Ron, I can't tell you how much I love that shop. I mean... Spending eight hours on my vacation, thats I look forward to that eight hours all year long. That's how much I love the magic shop. And it was like saying goodbye to you and saying goodbye to that shop. It was like mourning the loss of a friend, man. Oh, that and thing, he
2: did mourn. He definitely mourned. And when we went back to, to Myrtle Beach the next time and it wasn't there, he was not happy. It's not, he, the, he same. It's not the same. He didn't have his magic shop to go to. So. But um,
0: <laughs> we were talking about uh, doing magic lectures. Have you done any lectures? Would you be willing to do lectures if... Uh, our magician friends listening would like to hire you for a magic lecture, whether it be over Zoom or something like that. Um, yeah, I haven't uh, haven't tried Zoom. In fact, this was
1: my first podcast, and uh, I, I do some lectures at conventions. I used to do Kadabra and uh, um, and some conventions and, uh, and um, family entertaining workshops in uh, in Vegas and you know, I, I, circus magic. I, I, I've done lectures at Catlinburg. I I don't do a lot of lectures, but I have done some, and uh, I could
0: do more. Well, perfect. Well, look him up at themagicofronconley.com, and you can find you on Facebook just under Ron Conley. Ron, thanks a million for being here today, man. We had a blast. Thank you, dude. Thank you. You're awesome, man. Just stay on the line real quick. I have a couple plugs, and then we'll wrap this thing up. On January 27th at 7 p.m., we'll be doing our full evening Magic and Illusion show live on stage, but um, zoomed.
2: 22nd, not 27th. Just to let you know. January
0: 20th. Let me start that whole thing again. Yes. On January 22nd at 7 p.m., we'll be doing our full evening Magic and Illusion show live on stage, but zoomed into the comfort of your living room. This is a fundraiser show for a couple different elementary schools, and the proceeds will truly help them out. For tickets or more information on the event, go to com and check out the events page. Also, all 16 episodes of Wes Isley's Magic Life, Season 1, are now available on Jewel TV. Jewel TV is on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire, the Jewel TV app, and tons of other places. It's in over 100 million households. And for a limited time, it is also on YouTube. You can catch up on Season 1 before Season 2 debuts in February. See, See you, you next week! week. Today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Express Copy and Graphics. Mention promo code Isley to get 10% off. Their website is expresscopy.com. That's X-P-R-E-S-S dash dot com. They do it all. Copies, banners, signs, vehicle wraps, promo items, practically anything you need printed, they can do it for you. These guys are great. Check them out. Check us out online at wesisley.com and patreon.com forward slash Wes underscore Isley for behind the scene videos, blooper videos, never before seen footage, discounts on merchandise, magic trick tutorials, and more. That's Wes Isley spelled W-E-S-I-S-E-L-I.